2: Las Vegas, Nevada, a city accustomed to high stakes, but tonight, the highest stakes of all.
3: Leadership of the free world, it's Tuesday Night Debates.
2: Will it be a Hillary Hail Mary, or is it time to burn baby burn?
3: Will Jim Webb take another life?
2: And what about the block of granite?
3: There's also another guy named something like Mayor McCheese. At the end of the night, one debater will get a rose from Anderson Cooper. I don't think that's exactly how it works. We'll find out in minutes when these five debaters kick off. It's no secret these people don't like each other.
0: How big is this debate? Big.
3: It is so big.
0: We cannot communicate how big it is.
3: Now let's throw it down to our sideline reporter, Colin McEnroe, with lots of girl questions and whether people have any boo-boos.
0: Yeah, just because I'm a sideline reporter doesn't mean I'm going to ask girl questions. That is a, such a stereotype. All right, so we did that a long time ago. We did that intro whenever it was that there were five Democratic candidates um, debating in Las Vegas. So go ahead, Google that. Um, uh, but our point at the time was that an awful lot of things that aren't sports, things that might more accurately be placed in the category of public affairs or news uh, are treated increasingly like sports and packaged increasingly like sports. But we didn't think, well, first of all, let me say that we didn't think as deeply about it as our first guest did today. Let me also say that there's going to be a little bit of a theme here in the early part of the show about how, I mean, we've talked an awful lot about what is going on in this absolutely unprecedented kind of political climate and presidential uh, administration. But maybe we've talked a little bit less about how people process it and categorize it and understand it. Um, so we're going to focus on that a little bit um, in the first segment. In the, in the second segment, we'll kind of segue uh, to a different kind of take on it. We have a writer for the National Review, Kevin Williamson, who's going to be talking about how you can understand the, Bush, the Trump administration uh, through the play, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and, and other products of that ilk that kind of um, articulate a kind of alpha male position, and then towards the end, because everybody is suddenly fa- fascinated by chiefs of staff. Chiefs of staff are really interesting. All of a sudden, Be, I mean, I, I'm I cover news and politics and whatever all that stuff is. Hard news, I don't know. I couldn't. I happen to know that uh, Barack Obama had four chiefs of staff. I could tell you the names of two of them. <laughs> And I actually have to pay attention to this kind of stuff. But chiefs of staff are suddenly very in vogue, very interesting. Uh, Chris Whipple has a book out about the history of chiefs of staff. So that'll be our final segment today. But as I said, we're going to start with Brian Curtis. He is an editor-at-large at at The Ringer. He's one of our favorite guests. uh, And he uh, has been writing about the sportsification of things that are not sports, and most specifically the debate uh, and vote uh, over the health care bill, so so uh, Brian Curtis, welcome back to our midst.
2: I'm I'm ready for some football. All right, oh, let's do are it. you re- are you
0: really ready for some football? <laughs> um, I am some night it'll just consist of them asking that question over and over again until they really establish that everybody in America is ready for f- some football <laughs> we and, need some answers. and then they'll sign answers. off. and then ready? they'll just they'll sign off after that um, so as you point out uh, the health care bill was not a trivial matter this is uh, people will probably live or die in some cases depending on whether they can get access to decent decent health care whether they can participate in preventive um, health care um, so it's it's no laughing matter and it's certainly no trivial matter and it's probably Probably a little bit more important than, say, an average NFC North, you know, contest. So, but as you say, in some ways, there's some way in which our, our antennae for that kind of thing, for a sports event, were tuned towards something as, as important as the healthcare debate. I will now stop babbling and let you lay out your premise.
2: Well, it really reminded me of it on Thursday night because we have this, you know, we all know what time the Super Bowl is, right? But there are these lesser sports events on the calendar that people sort of find out about on Twitter. They get on Twitter and a couple of people are watching, say, a pitcher on the West Coast throwing a no-hitter or some weirdly competitive Pac-12 football game between Utah and Oregon State where the score is like 61 to 62 in the fourth quarter. Uh, and then they all sort of get online, and everybody goes, "Ooh, ooh, what channel is that on? Who's playing? What, what's going? On? What are the stakes here? Does this affect the playoff or something?" <laughs> and everybody gets online and starts tweeting about it. And that was, again, minus the life and death that you mentioned, and the and the importance of the policy. That's basically what happened on Thursday night as the Senate voted on this so-called skinny healthcare repeal bill.
0: Right, and and there, are, as you explain, well, actually, before we get to that, I just want to say that even. When I read your piece, I, I, I resonated right away because I had been thinking, and I'm older than you are, uh, and I had been thinking, this reminds me of a very specific thing, the, the whole spectacle of John McCain, uh, diagnosed with a very serious form of brain cancer, coming back to participate in this thing, reminds me of, of something from my adolescence, and this is what it is. And we, uh, the, the Knicks come out to
2: warm up. There's no Willis Reed. He's not there. And all of a sudden, a roar ensues. Here comes
3: Willis. And the crowd is
2: going wild. I you look over at the entrance to where the players come out, and there's Willis lumbering out on the floor, uniform on, appearing that he's going to play. And I got to tell you, that was unbelievable. That was unbelievable because of the incredible i get chills actually thinking
0: about it right now a few years later so there's a grown man saying he gets uh, chills i remember um, marv albert saying the lakers are not even warming up they're just watching willis (laughs) test that leg um and and so i mean that is that's a trope right brian that's something that we're kind of familiar with
2: sure yeah i mean that you know the 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 wounded you know sort of sort of star coming out to do one last thing. I guess to complete the metaphor here, though, Willis would have had to score a couple of buckets for the Lakers, right, <laughs> sabotage his own team. <laughs> That's essentially what John McCain did. Uh, you know, and, and of course, that added to the drama of the night, right? We had no idea what McCain would do. And I think one of, the, one of the weird sports parallels here is that with most Senate votes, most House votes, the outcome is preordained. People don't call these things without knowing the results. But here was one of the few times where we didn't know the results. We didn't know what was going to happen. Reporters were groping around trying to figure it out. And that, I think, added to the whole spectacle as
0: well. Right. Uh, My producer, Jonathan Maynichel, also points out the, of course, famous uh, Kirk Gibson home run, also kind of a a similar kind of thing. But as you point out, the person most in charge of us not knowing the outcome was McCain, right? McCain called attention to this. How did he do that?
2: So reporters are asking him when he's striding purposefully to the Senate floor and saying, how are you going to vote, Senator? How are you going to vote? And his quote was, watch the show. (laughs) (laughs) Or in another rendering for for the Washington Post, wait for the show, right? So he's the one telling us this is not political reporters trivializing uh, great matters of state or political reporters who secretly want to be sports writers, right? Mm -hmm. You You know, ginning up the stakes here. This is the guy who could have released a press release, could have tweeted, could have done any number of things saying, you've got to wait for it. You've got to watch TV tonight and I'll, everything will be revealed before your eyes.
0: Um, as you also point out, I mean, there are uh, one of the ways that we sometimes can be made to care about a thing that we don't just naturally default into caring about is through storylines. So, I mean, this is, of course, especially true in things like Olympic whitewater kayaking, where it's important for us to know you know, about some promise that somebody made to his dying grandfather or something, because otherwise they're not going to watch Olympic whitewater kayaking. Um, And and as you point out, everything that we just said is effectively a storyline, correct?
2: Yeah, and what I've found is that the sports media, as I've gotten older, is just much much more explicit about this. Before the game starts, the announcer or the sports writer's literally say, here are the storylines, <laughs> not here are some things that would add to the drama of this night, but here are the storylines. And with McCain, we had some pretty clear ones. Obviously, he had been diagnosed with brain cancer the week before. He comes back to the Senate. He gives this stirring speech about the, you know, the sanctity of Senate procedure. And this is, this is what this body is, this deliberative body is about. But then he votes with the Republicans to help them evade such procedure and proceed to this climactic vote on Thursday night. So those were all the things that were going around in our head uh, as we watched C-SPAN in the wee hours of the morning.
0: So, th- you know, there are, there are two ways in which, in sports, storylines reach us. Either they reach us through some, you know, NBC uh, um, sports staffer researching, you know, whitewater kayaking to find out that there's anything interesting about the people doing it. Or when the athletes essentially proclaim to us that they are the storyline. Um, and, and, I mean, think, I don't know. You probably have a better example than I do. I don't know, Deion Sanders or somebody, you know, just somebody who just basically believes that he is the storyline. This is what you need to know. I'm going to do I'm going to be in charge here. And that's kind of what McCain did. And I wonder what you think about that, too, because, you know, those kinds of athletes. And as I say, you could probably come up with better examples than I I can often are not all that well liked by their teammates. Uh, And, you know, you sort of wonder about the Susan Collins and the Lisa Murkowski's who were kind of there you know, doing some of the initial blocking before McCain took the ball and ran through the hole for the touchdown to complete my tortured sports metaphor. Um, You know, I mean, nobody's really talking about them the way they talk about McCain, right? McCain made himself central to the story.
2: No, it's like Babe Ruth pointing to the fence right before he hits a home run or or Reggie Jackson saying, I'm the straw that stirs the drink. Yeah. Hey, look at me! Here we go. I'm. This is. This is all on my shoulders, baby. No, I think that's right, and I. And I think you know, people pointed out pretty quickly after you know when we were all kind of, you know, a gaga over McCain and what he had done. That you know, here are two Republican senators who had risked an enormous amount of political capital to do this, and their votes count exactly the same as John McCain. But they didn't have the same taste for drama and then they didn't they didn't say watch the show. Uh, it was pretty obvious what they were gonna do. And so we didn't you know, so they didn't in a weird way sort of attract the same kind of attention. But that is funny, you know, I think with athletes we, we always say there's this criticism longstanding with sports writers, look at me athletes, athletes who bring attention to themselves rather than bring the lunch pail to work, right? But in a way, that's the stuff that drives sports writing. And that mm-hmm. drives sports television. We, all sports writers might say they don't like people like that, but they secretly want people like that. Because those are the people that get, get put butts in the seats, that gets you to tune in, and that makes, uh, <laughs> puts money in sports writers' pockets, right? Athletes that say, watch this, watch the show.
0: Right, and that becomes the story. And writers and broadcasters are looking for stories to tell. They're they're probably more interested in that kind of Reggie Jackson athlete than uh, are maybe even average people sometimes, or certainly some of the colleagues of uh, those kinds of look at me athletes. I I also feel as though, disagree with me if you if you want, but I feel as though once the media gets its hooks into a certain kind of storyline. Like McCain, wounded warrior, brain cancer, courageously coming back to Um, cast this all-important vote, they stop asking questions about it and they just basically play that thing out the way that it's supposed to be played out. I don't know. McCain's staff supposedly has said in the past that he's nine parts hero and one one part troll. And the other way of (laughs) understanding that night was he was just trolling the crap out of the Trump administration, who we know he hates for their terrible treatment of him. I mean, he had a meeting with Mike Pence. How likely was it that, you know, that he he was open to some argument Mike Pence might be making at that moment. You know, he, he dragged it out to this final moment, I think partly to torture them. <laughs> Although that doesn't really fit the, the you know, the Willis Reed narrative.
2: Yeah, and I think the interesting thing about politics, is you can be a troll and a hero at the same time. Because so much of what political writers like about John McCain is he's been trolling his own party. And I think it's funny you mentioned that, how we took this sort of news, uh, this sort of idea and ran with it. It's totally true, because the week before, and really the months and months before, because John McCain endorsed Donald Trump in the election. Mm -hmm. Even after all the stuff Donald Trump said about him in particular, even after the Access Hollywood tape, John McCain endorsed Donald Trump for president. And I think one thing is we'd had this kind of complicated conversation about John McCain. Is he really a maverick? What does that mean? Is this, if he had a quote-unquote mavericky period, is that long since done? And really, he's just a Republican now, and he's just, you know, he's his this this John McCain is really a pretty conventional Republican who sides with leadership most of the time. But as soon as this happened, I tuned I turned on CNN, and someone said, "Is John McCain the new lion of the Senate?" What what does that mean? <laughs> what did why did John McCain suddenly become a lion at that moment? You know, Ted, Teddy Kennedy was a lion. So what what is, is is you know trolling your own party as you put it? Does that make you? Does that you grow a mane at that point? I, I don't get it. <laughs> but again, we were we had the we had the ball in our hands to use your tortured metaphor, and we're we're running in a broken field. It's 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 all it's all McCain as hero from there.
0: You know, um, Brian, the other thing that Gear piece got me thinking about, it's something that we've talked about on the show in the past, and in the intro that you heard um, sounds fanciful, but it's not. So, this actually is CNN's intro for the all important 2016 vice presidential debate. This is, we didn't produce this. This is their real intro from October 4th, 2016.
2: Tonight, the vice presidential candidates in a high pressure test. Hillary Clinton will never be elected president. With a close election on the line.
0: Donald Trump wants us to trust him. Are you getting me?
2: Senator Tim Kaine and Governor Mike Pence battling for the nation's second highest office and making the case for their campaigns.
4: When Donald Trump becomes president of the United States of America, the change will be
2: huge. Hillary is ready. She's ready to fight. And she is ready to lead. This is CNN's coverage of Cain versus
0: Well, I'm going to fade it. I mean, Brian, that's not even Monday Night Football. That's really more kind of like WWE, right? The, these I, I'm CNN, when it comes to this kind of production, they kind of are without shame. But uh, But all the networks do this, right? They make it sound yeah. like sports.
2: Well, and no offense to your staff, but that was way more absurdist than even the parody you put together. (laughs) You couldn't have possibly topped that. (laughs) So yes, sports sports television and network news are the same aesthetic at this point in history. There is no difference. The interesting question to me is, what is the chicken and the egg of this? Because I think I, I am mostly a sports writer in my professional life, and I often hear people say, oh... CNN has become just like ESPN, you know, from the overdone intros to the panel of 19 people arguing about it. You know, it's just like a pre- everything has a pregame show. Everything has a postgame show. Everything has a countdown clock. But, you know, I seem to remember Crossfire being on CNN going way back into the early 80s and them having a really good sense of people arguing. So I think it's an actually it's just a question of who's to blame. And I think parts of it we could pull from sports television and parts we could just pull from news. And here we are that they have become one great, weird, strange creature in our lives.
0: I actually have, for your inspection, Brian Curtis, that one great, strange creature who has fused those two sensibilities perfectly. His name is Scaramucci.
1: But here's what I tell you about the president. He's the most competitive person I've ever met. Okay, I've seen this guy throw a dead spiral through a tire. I've seen him at Madison Square Garden with a top coat on. He's standing in the key and he's hitting foul shots and swishing them. Okay, he sinks... Three-foot pots. I don't see this guy as a guy that's ever under siege. This is a very, very competitive person. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of incoming that comes into the White House, but the president's a winner.
0: Okay, and what we're going to do is we're going to do a lot of winning. All right. So, so there you have it, Brian. <laughs>
2: it's like five sports metaphors in a row. My favorite of which is you're inside a basketball stadium wearing a top coat. Right shooting the free throw. It's not, it's not just in a suit, right? It's just you have the top coat on. Why Why are you doing that? That's just a very, very funny image of uh, of success.
0: Yeah I'm, picturing, yeah. yeah, I'm picturing the guy that uh, Robert De Niro has to kill in the old neighborhood. Uh, Don <laughs> Cheech, I think his name is, uh, in The Godfather. You know, that, that kind of top coat, like a cape-like like thing where he's shooting. But th- this is, I mean, this is kind of This is the fusion, right, that there's an insistence on the excellence of this person based not on his ability to be president, but on some kind of, I think, highly imaginary sports prowess.
2: Yeah, and he's converting everything to a binary world of winning and losing. Right. So that, you know, every act that happens in politics now is a W for Trump or an L for Trump. And, of course, he would insist probably everything was a W. And even the other night, you know, so this big climactic Senate vote ends and we're all sitting there waiting because we're waiting for the Trump tweet. Like, that is the epilogue to everything now. It's okay, something has happened, and now Trump is going to tweet about it. And in fact, he gave this bizarre tweet about how he thought the Senate should not have the uh, 60-vote filibuster-proof barrier, but the 50-vote barrier, which, of course, it was a 50-vote barrier in this particular instance. But that's Trump, right? And that's another staple of sports television, which is preview of next week's games, Right. (laughs) right? Trump is not just telling us what happened, but here's the next fight. Here's the next thing over the horizon so that we all... Stay tuned as it were.
0: It's what they should do actually is, you know, and I guess they sort of do it. But what would be better would be to have Trump do sort of like a you know, Mike McCarthy, Bill Parcells type thing after the vote where he has to go to the podium and just take a lot of questions, you know, about like you know, why didn't that work or you know? What I do think, you think he'd like
2: that, don't yeah. you? Or I even mean, if not, not with questions, how about just like a Facebook live, you know, Trump staring into a camera from his television where we can see the kind of the glow of Fox News or seeing on his face as he watches live with us. I mean, that's a kind of a very 2017 media thing to do. I actually
0: think he'd get some, have some fun with it. It's hard to come up with a punishment for Donald Trump that he won't like. All right, so <laughs> I, I'll get in trouble with certain people if I don't point out that the White House, when they released their transcript of Scaramucci, uh, changed three-foot putts to 30-foot putts. (laughs) Um, but that's really true they actually did do that Um, so I don't know what uh, fit that into any kind of box you want to but Brian Curtis great to hear your voice again editor at large at The Ringer thanks for talking to us about this
2: thank you Colin
0: All right, we're going to take a break we're going to come back we're going to look at this a different way we're going to go from sports to theater and we're going to (laughs) well assuming there's any difference (laughs) but the kind that's on stages anyway Welcome uh, back. This We call the show The Scramble, because we like to scramble around on Mondays uh, and react to things that happen over the weekend. And there were pieces written over the weekend, published over the weekend anyway, uh, that excited a lot of controversy, or at least conversation, or got people thinking and talking. Uh, Brian Curtis, who was just on, I think his piece was one of those pieces. But um, one of the ones I saw circulated a lot was by Kevin Williamson, a roving correspondent for the National Review. Uh, He's joining us right now. Uh, His piece uses a different prism to look at some of the same things that we just talked about. Yeah, it is the prism of a certain kind of alpha male depicted in movies and theater. Uh, Kevin Williamson, welcome to our show. Hi, how are you? Well, I'm just fine. Thanks for asking. So um, one, the, the thing that you begin uh, your piece with or, or the way that you introduce us to a certain idea is through uh, Glengarry Glen Ross, the play by David Mamet. Yeah. But really more specifically... Um, the movie version where there's a character named Blake played by Alec Baldwin. Um, we're just going to hear him just to get the things going. The, the first voice you're going you're to hear is the voice of the downtrodden character, Shelley Levine, a, a salesman on the downward slope of things. Uh, he's going to complain that the, the leads, the leads are the things that salesmen use to try to get new clients. The leads are weak. Uh, and then you'll hear Blake's response.
2: The leads are weak. The leads are weak leads are
0: weak you're weak i've been in this business 15 years what's your name you that's my name you know why mister because you drove a hyundai
2: to
1: get here tonight i drove an eighty thousand dollar bmw that's my name
2: and your name is your wanting and you can't play in the man's game
0: you can't close them and go home and tell your wife your troubles. Because only one thing counts in this life. Get them to sign on the line which is dotted. All right, that's the character Blake. So, Kevin, what does he mean to us in this particular situation? What does he symbolize?
1: Yeah, good stuff there. Um, Well, I I sort of, I I think it depends on how you look at the play. I think the way the play is intended to be understood is... uh, this dark and friendless and largely amoral universe uh, of which Blake is a part. Now, he doesn't appear in the play. He was a uh, character written specifically for the movie when the play was rewritten as a movie a few years later. And one of the ironies about that is the investors didn't think that the play was saleable enough until they put this great <laughs> speech in about salesmanship. Uh, but what's weird, um, I guess it's maybe not so weird, is that certain people, certain men especially, I guess, and particularly young men, have embraced Blake as something to aspire to. They uh, memorized this speech, they quoted back and forth to each other. I was at a uh, revival of the show on Broadway a few years ago in twenty twelve, and there were some young guys, you know, waiting to see the uh, waiting to see the play who were kind of quoting this thing back and forth to them and I was thinking they must have been really disappointed because that character doesn't actually appear in the play, just being someone for the movie. So I was thinking about that crazy interview that Anthony Scaramucci gave to the New Yorker and thinking to myself, normal adult human beings don't really talk like that. Uh, But people who are imitating certain characters they've come across in movies, television, things like that do. And I think that Blake and uh, in the general David Mamet uh, universe is, is one of those things that's often imitated in that way.
0: Right, there's a, a scene. Well, we decided not to run the clip because it just doesn't really work very well as pure audio. But there's a scene from the movie Boiler Room, uh, very similar yeah. kind of thing. Where, the, <laughs> where the guys, these are young guys who are trying to be traitors, are sitting around in somebody's house watching the movie Wall Street with Charlie Sheen and and Michael Douglas um, as Gordon Gecko, and they know it's in the way that you're talking about right now with like they know the dialogue, Vin Diesel yeah, and all is these good. Yeah, and and they're just That's saying up. it right along with the thing where. And, and once again, I think we understand Wall Street and to a certain degree Glenn, Gary Glenn Ross as cautionary tales about a certain kind of emptiness, but they're not yeah. always embraced that way.
1: Yeah, no, I don't think so. And I think that, of course, this all relates to, to Trump, which is what the column is really about. That certain people look at Donald Trump and they see him as being this character that they aspire to be, this commanding, you know, so-called alpha male. Uh, I, I sort of think that terminology is is faintly ridiculous in the context of modern human beings. But, of course, the thing about Trump is that he isn't that guy. He plays that guy on television. He's a lot like the people who look up to him, that he has been his, spent his life doing an imitation of something – that he actually isn't. I mean, he's not a great salesman. He can't even get Republicans to agree on the health care deal that they all want to agree on. You think he could sell real estate? Uh, you know, not if it was a terrible real estate like they're having to sell in Glengarry Gray, Glen Ross. Uh, the funny thing about Trump, of course, is that uh, he's been a pretty middling businessman. Hmm. He was really bad at operating casinos and hotels. Uh, his real estate career, fairly middling. Uh, he, most people who've looked at it figured he probably would have made more money if he just parked his inheritance in a mutual fund and spent the next 20 years just amusing himself, what he's been really good at is the celebrity business, which if, even if you look at his own financial filings, that's where his money comes from. He's got something like $300 million in cash and securities and then a brand that he values at $10 billion, which I think is probably absurd. But even if we take that uh, at face value, Trump's career hasn't been Gordon Gecko's career. It's been Paris Hilton's career.
0: Right. Well, and and so I don't know if you heard us in the pre- previous segment, we played the Scaramucci uh, clip where he talks about uh, Trump sinking <laughs> uh, baskets yeah. and, and putts and all kinds of stuff like that. And in a way that you point out and you also cite Peggy Noonan for pointing it out, there's a way in which he's. He's not a tough guy. The, he presents as a tough guy, and I think he gets identified by a certain part of his base as a tough guy. There's a way in which there's something a little soft about him. There's a you know for the most part he likes to be at his own resorts. You know during the campaign it seemed like he would try to get yeah. back to Trump Tower or to Mar-a-Lago at the end of a day rather than sleep in a bed that he didn't know. There's a way in which this guy is the opposite of the tough guy he presents at, as.
1: Well, yeah, I think about it. He's a you know second, third generation rich guy. Uh, you know, he's a spoiled, coddled suburban kid who had a very wealthy and uh, well connected father, and uh, something that he's had trouble living up to. I think in some ways, you know, was really Fred Trump, his dad, who really built the, the Trump empire that uh, that Trump inherited, and what Trump did, of course, was build the, the media end of that, the product licensing, and, and all the rest of it, which is all good. That's a fine, respectable business. Don't get me wrong on that. Well. Maybe not a respectable business, but a fine business. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. But you know, he's someone who's who's never lifted anything heavier than money. Uh, who inherited uh, something like two hundred million dollars worth of real estate uh, from his father, who had all of that financing and stuff in place. Whose earliest projects were backed by his dad and all that kind of stuff. So he likes to come out and present himself as this self-made man and this tough guy. But he's actually a guy who sits at home whining on Twitter that Joe Scarborough's not nice to him on NBC anymore or MSNBC anymore, and his tweets and such, and his petulance and his complaints about, oh, everyone's so unfair to me, the media's so unfair. It's really, it's kind of sad. But on the other hand, he's this guy who's presented himself as the great deal maker, the leader, the executive who can get things done, who has shown that he can't do anything. Um, He's gotten almost nothing done since being the president. So we've got a lot of stuff that's important on the national agenda. We've got tax reform. We've got health care. We've got a number of other things that need to happen. He's got a Republican majority in both houses and a whole party lined up ready to sign off on getting something done on these things. But this requires executive leadership, and Trump is just not a guy who can do that. And in fact, he's never really managed a large, complex corporate enterprise.
0: I there are um ways in which he, first of all, I, I have to say that we almost didn't have you on the show today because you linked to a Rush song in your piece. I'm trying to get the rock band Rush off this show as much as possible, but there's, um, there's, uh, but we forgive you. Uh, but Man, there's it was on the radio. It was uh, in my head. Right. I'm not Canadian anyway. But um, there's an Elvis Costello song that mentions uh, fingers that have never known working blisters, and and the, yeah. to me there's there's that in in Trump. and there was a moment during the campaign I had this apperseu, or I was looking at him, I was thinking, well, he's got this sort of whatever that's going on that creates that particular skin tone and then the the poofed up hair in in some kind of way and then the fondness for gold and chandeliers and uh candelabras and and i thought his
1: he looks like he lives in Liberace's
0: house. It's exactly where I was going. That is exactly where yeah. I was going. The, 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 in some ways, the celebrity he most presents as is Liberace, which would be, of course, a very appalling statement <laughs> from his point of view. Well, the
1: thing is, Liberace was a conservative. You know, He was a pretty <laughs> hardcore anti-communist Republican. Uh, Trump's not much of one. You actually wrote an essay about that early in the campaign, Trump and Liberace as being sort of the same character. Uh, In talking about this stuff in movies, there's another uh, Al Pacino movie called uh, The Devil's Advocate, which Mm. is a silly movie, but kind of a good one in some ways. And there's a character who was this homicidal real estate developer, and the people who did the movie actually, however they managed it, bamboozled Trump into letting them shoot these scenes in his ridiculous apartment with the uh, fake Michelangelo frescoes on the ceiling and the gold-leafed everything, and it's absurd and hilarious, but... Trump is one of those guys who really has internalized the lesson, I think, that for a certain kind of person, there's no such thing as bad publicity. When you think about it, if not for an embarrassing tabloid divorce case back in the 80s, Trump would be just a fairly obscure New York City real estate developer.
0: So uh, we're talking to Kevin Williamson. Uh, He wrote this piece for the National Review. Um, You know, uh, we're heading into our final segment of the show that's going to be about chiefs of staff. Uh, Chris Whipple's written a book about chiefs of staff. And it seems to me that one of the things that chiefs of staff do and presidents do is try to figure out what the balance is between uh, work and and any kind of relaxation for the president. It's a really hard job for most people. Uh, They find ways of releasing it, Uh, you know, whether it's Barack Obama with this ascetic seven almond evening where he's maybe watching a little bit of basketball and eating these almonds really slowly, or George W. <laughs> Bush had that whole mountain biking thing where he would just get this whole reckless streak out. But I mean, it's, it's a hard job. To, for the most part, it's a really hard job, or you just have to decide you're going to outsource it to some chief of staff yeah. who's going to have a really hard job. But one of the things that I think, you know, one of the ways your piece kind of bleeds over into that conversation is, I don't think Anybody has really decided yet how hard this job is in the Trump administration. He seems to be watching like a lot of television. And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe he's never really worked on fans
1: because he's not doing very much.
0: (laughs) Well, that's what I'm sort of saying. Never. Maybe he's never worked really, really hard.
1: No, I don't think he probably has. I mean, that's an interesting question. If who's going to end up actually doing the job of the presidency for the next three and a half years or so. Trump has surrounded himself with some really good people in his cabinet and some really dodgy people among his close advisors and uh, kind of personal confidants. So if a Trump administration ends up being essentially run by the Rick Perrys and Betsy DeVosses and people like that, then I'm perfectly happy with that. That's a, you know best case outcome, I suppose. But I'm not sure that cabinet officials and such can really exercise that kind of leadership when you've got a president who's just intellectually and morally and personally unfit and unable to do the job.
0: Um, Well, typically the person who can be the corrective is the chief of staff. So this is perhaps a good place for us to say farewell to Kevin Williamson. Great piece. Great conversation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And then we're going to take a little break here, a very short break. We're going to come back and talk chiefs of staff with Chris Whipple, who has, as they say, written the book.
3: Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf, with help from our intern, Tim Cohn. Amanda Fish is now called Wanda. The part of Leo McGarry was played by Bill Curry. On tomorrow's show, the joy of independent minor league baseball, where misfits meet major league stars of the downward slope and guys who just can't quit the game. And now, back to Colin.
0: If you're wondering. If you're wondering why we're using that music, that's like the Fox election headquarters music or something. We've been making fun of the way in which a lot of news and public affairs programming sounds more and more like sports programming, whether it's the invasion uh, of Iraq in, in 2003 or just election night or whatever. The other reason we're doing it is we kind of, I guess like, It's not really fair to say we lost the Get Smart music that we usually use, but we're having trouble getting to it anyway. We're having technical difficulties. Anyway, uh, that's a long explanation about something you don't even care about. But you do care about chiefs of staff. Everybody suddenly is very interested in chiefs of staff. As I said before, I I cover politics. I've been covering writing about politics and national affairs for decades and decades now. I know that Barack Obama had four chiefs of staff. I couldn't tell you the names of two of them. Um that's not really true anymore I looked them up but uh, I mean going into today I could have told you you know I could have told you two of them, Rahm Emanuel and Bill Daley. I had no idea the other two. Um, But now, right now, everybody's really, really interested in chiefs of staff because one of them has just been driven out. Another one is coming in. Everywhere you go, there's conversations about whether uh, General Kelly can do the job. So the person who might be best equipped to have an answer to that is Chris Whipple, the author of The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency. I should say that Chris Whipple will appear at the Hotchkiss Library of Sharon, Connecticut, this Friday, August 4th, 6 p.m., contact the library. It's the Hotchkiss Library of Sharon, Connecticut, which makes me think it's not the actual Hotchkiss School Library because that's in Lakeville. Uh, So call the Hotchkiss Library in Sharon for tickets, which you'll want to get after you hear this interview. Hi, Chris. Uh, Chris Whipple. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Um, by the way, I can give you another uh, uh, pr- public appearance tip. I was doing a public appearance down in New Haven with Al Franken yesterday, and it was sponsored by our, the R.J. Julia, which is the great independent bookstore, and uh, Roxanne Cody, who runs that store, was asking uh, all kinds of questions backstage of me and Al Franken, mainly of Al Franken, about uh, Kelly and whether he'd be a good chief of staff, and I said, well, there's a new book, there's a book out about chiefs of staff. And she said, really? And she got very <laughs> excited. So Call R.J. Julia right now, I'm sure. I will. So, nice. the tip. so let's talk about this job. First of all, we should say, uh, as much uh, as the government of the United States attempts to diversify itself, this is a job that's only ever been done, as far as I know, by white men, right? How long has it that's, been around? Uh, that's certainly true. Yeah. How long has there been a chief of staff?
4: Well, you know, some people would say that uh, Eisenhower uh, began the the job with uh, Sherman Adams. His, uh, he was sort of the civilian version of Ike's Army Chief of Staff. Um, but I really think that the the empowered White House chief, as we now know him, and they've all been men, as you point out, uh it really began with uh ironically with H. R. Haldeman, who of course was Nixon's uh, infamous White House chief, the Lord High Executioner who uh so called, who was devoured by Watergate. The irony is that Haldeman really wrote the book. He 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 created the template for um how the job should be run, of course, with the exception of uh Watergate, that's where he failed to speak truth to power but he, he really created the position and the model is one that presidents have strayed from at their peril ever since every president learns with the exception of our current president so far that you cannot govern effectively without empowering a white house chief of staff as first among equals to execute your agenda and most important Tell you what you don't want to hear. That's the key.
0: Right. So uh, I want to come uh, go through a lot about that. I do want to just uh, do a little historical geeky footnote, which is, of course, the through line from Haldeman to Sherman Adams is that Nixon claimed that he was the one who had to fire Sherman Adams. Sherman Adams had to be let go for accepting, among other things, a Vicuña coat. Uh, That's right. And, That's right. But however, in reality, uh, like many things that Richard Nixon said, that wasn't true. Mead Alcorn, who was a Connecticut Republican legend, was the person who actually had to fire Sherman Adams, who then started a ski lodge, which is good he had a Vicuña coat to stay warm.
4: Well, he was a former New Hampshire governor. Right. And and so was John Sununu and um thereby proving James Baker's rule, which is that former governors, former principals, former CEOs uh, don't usually succeed as White House chiefs.
0: Right. Is it? Do you think it's fair to say that the chiefs of staff that we remember, like when I started thinking about this whole topic, I thought about Sununu right away. I thought about Don Regan, uh, who was Reagan's chief of staff for a while. I thought about chiefs of staff. Oh, yeah, Haldeman is <laughs> another great example. The people that we know, I mean, if you're doing a really good job of chi- as chief of staff, there's a better chance people don't know who you are
4: yeah no that's absolutely true i mean they, the the phrase used to be that the first requirement was a passion for anonymity that's no longer really true uh in the modern era because you know the chief, among other things, has to occasionally go on the sunday talk shows and and put a face to uh to the position uh which is without a doubt in my mind the second most powerful job in government um you know uh Dick Cheney uh, likes to say that the the white house chief has more power than the vice president uh... he doesn't always add that that's true except when Dick Cheney was right. vice president.
0: But see, Dick Cheney belongs to this kind of Shaolin warrior monk class of Republican chiefs of staff. He had been a chief of staff. Rumsfeld had been a chief of staff. Jim Baker was chief of staff for two different presidencies. These are guys who really know how to do this. And uh, Jim Baker, I think, famously said that you're if you want to be chief of staff, you should be paying a lot more attention to the words of staff than you are to the word chief. Um, but And I think that's significant for Trump, that, you know, he didn't really pick that kind of person. He picked Reince Priebus, who's kind of a second-tier guy who'd really only really worked at the Republican National Committee, right, and a, a lawyer from Kenosha, Wisconsin. He didn't pick one of those kind of elite guys that you can get as a Republican.
4: Well, that's that's certainly true, and Priebus Priebus made plenty of rookie mistakes. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, Trump. You know, the irony of listening to Trump this morning, talking about Kelly as somebody who will go down as the greatest White House chief ever, look, the first six months proved that Donald Trump has no idea what the job is about, uh, because he failed to empower Reince Priebus uh, to do the job. Um, the White House chief has got to be, first of all, the gatekeeper. Um, who gives the president time and space to think he's got to be the person who through whom uh, everybody goes to the president with the exception let's say of family you know i mean okay ivanka and jared are not going to do that but the staff has to do that and you know uh, scaramucci this guy in the first place shouldn't be within a hundred miles of a functioning white house Uh, the first thing kelly should do is yank his credentials and get him off the grounds Uh, failing that Scaramoci has to report through Kelly, uh, just as everybody else in the West Wing should, or this, this cannot work. Um, look, it's possible that Bannon can come and go, um, from the Oval and pretend to be in charge of policy, kind of the way Ed Meese did in the, uh, Reagan White House. Uh, but in that White House, Baker controlled everything that mattered, executing the agenda. And Kelly has to do that for trump to have any chance whatsoever of governing
0: There's so many places I want to go with this conversation, but one of the questions that I have, the only other general that I can think of was Al Haig. There may have been some others that I'm I'm not aware of. And you and I, we've not been generals. We don't know what that's like. But I'm thinking that it's a slightly different job, that in many respects what a chief of staff has to do is recognize uh, a a multiplicity of cross-currents of power, influence, desire for access. I mean, in some ways there's almost the opposite of a clear chain of command there's a whole bunch of people who want to get to the president want access to that person's time um, and, and you kind of have to figure out maybe even on a day by day basis how to navigate that
4: yeah it's exponentially more difficult than being a general as, as difficult as a, that job may be um, and and Kelly by all accounts is a very effective uh, leader and uh, extremely competent but this is a whole this is another level um, Baker and Leon Panetta, in my mind, were the were the gold standard, the two best. Uh, and Panetta is a guy who had been around the block. He'd been a congressman. He'd been, for many terms, he'd been an OMB director. He knew budgets. He knew everything. He knew policy. He knew Capitol Hill. Uh, he was described, and I t- describe him in the book, as a guy who had an iron fist inside a velvet glove. You have to be uh you have to have it's an amazing skill set. I mean, you have to be a, a the ultimate diplomat. You have to know uh you, you have to return phone calls to Capitol Hill all hours of the day and night. Uh and at the end of the day, in addition to all of that, you've got to be the guy as Panetta and Baker were who can walk into the Oval Office, close the door and tell the president what he doesn't want to hear. Rumsfeld you know, in the book, Rumsfeld tells me uh, a, a, a number of stories about doing that with Jerry Ford. And he said, look, the, what, the White House chief is the one person besides his wife who can look him straight in the eye and tell him, you cannot go down this road. Here are the reasons why. Trust me, it's not going to work. Um, Priebus was utterly unable to do that. And this is a this is a West Wing populated by a lot of enablers and sycophants it's pretty clear that there are no red lines that they won't allow the president to cross and i think kelly well we can get into this but you know he really needs to have conditions with trump and and frankly he needs to be ready to resign if uh... if trump crosses certain lines
0: right i mean um First of all, just back up for a second. I want to come back to that before we run out of time. But um, you know, it's not unusual for presidents to make a bad first choice. Panetta replaced Mac McClarty, who's a really, really nice guy. Uh, probably too nice a guy. Didn't have the iron fist, just had the velvet glove. Sununu and Don Regan were probably maybe a little bit of the opposite. I think Regan actually famously hung up on Nancy Reagan one time, which you just yeah. don't do. So I mean, it, it's not. And Jerry Ford and, and Jimmy Carter, as you point out in the book, they made the ultimate wrong decision. Decision, which was thinking that they could get along without a chief of staff.
4: You know what? No question about it. Look, uh, presidents um, sometimes, you know, one one former chief told me that it's a little bit like alcoholism. Uh, presidents have to hit rock bottom before they're ready to admit that they can't run the White House by themselves and they have to empower a White House chief to make things happen. Um, you got to wonder if Donald Trump would recognize rock bottom if he hit it. I mean, this is... This White House is is the most dysfunctional in history. Uh, There's just no comparison to, um, you know, Jimmy Carter. uh, It took him two and a half years to realize that he had to appoint a chief, uh, Ham Jordan. Uh, Jordan didn't have the title or the power until then. Um, Same thing, Bill Clinton, it took him a year and a half to realize that he needed somebody like Panetta to, and he needed to empower him. But there's no comparison because this is the Trump White House is completely broken, uh, maybe beyond repair. It can't do anything right. It can't issue executive orders that are enforceable. It can't pass legislation. It can't prioritize the president's agenda. It can't get anybody on the same page. It's thoroughly broken. So, this is a tough, tough task.
0: Very good chocolate cake, though. I think you're emphasizing too much of the negative, Chris Whipple. So, you know, you and I were not in the. No, it's a
4: piece of the most beautiful chocolate cake you've ever seen, actually. Exactly, the, okay. The job.
0: Let's get the quote right, yeah. So um, you and I weren't in the room, but I think we both absolutely know that General Kelly said, I have some preconditions. I am not taking this job unless you vouchsafe to me items A, B, and C. First of all, would you want, want to hazard a guess what any of those items are?
4: Well, the first item ought to be that he's first among equals and that everybody, including Scaramucci, again, with the possible exception, exception of Bannon, uh, has to go through him. That would be, uh, that would be condition number one. Um, I, you know, in addition to, to that condition, I, I think that Kelly should be, you know, the, the job is not really about loyalty to the president. The job is about loyalty to the presidency and to the Constitution, this White House has been you know I mean' he 's got to be able to go into Donald Trump, close the door, and say, "Look, there are certain lines i, I you may not cross where I will resign. Every chief who's really been successful has been ready to resign, and i think I think he should tell Trump, for example, that if he tweets something that is demonstrably false uh, I'm gone. You can find White House chief number three.
0: (laughs) Uh, That might make for a very short tenure. So we'll have to see how that plays out.
4: But every chief has to be ready to resign uh, or they can't be effective.
0: All right. So this is fascinating stuff. And uh, Chris Whipple uh, has written The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency. I would suggest that um, General Kelly and Donald Trump, since Donald Trump likes to watch television a lot, they they should first of all get Chris Whipple's book. And then they should also sit down and watch the West Wing and just see what Leo McGarry does. He was a great chief of staff. He respected both the presidency and ferociously was loyal to his president. So,
4: well, I would add that Kelly really should pick up the phone to Jim Baker if he hasn't already. And he should pick up the phone to Ken Duberstein, who was Reagan's last White House chief. It's troubling to me that I mean, what I'm hearing is that, um, these chiefs have not been getting phone calls. Uh, he needs to do that. To, Absolutely. if uh, he's serious about governing.
0: There are plenty of people out here who have done that job and done it well. Good idea to talk to them. Good idea to talk to Chris Whipple, too. Thanks to uh, Jonathan McNichol, Tim Cohn, and Kion Wolf for getting this show on the air. We've got a great show about indie baseball tomorrow. Look like I run, look
3: like I run play. Look
2: like I run, look like I run, look like I run play. Tell it from head to toe. No at the door. They like my taste. look
3: like I run this like like I run, look like I, run, look like I this Trump has fired somebody, it seems like once a week since Inauguration Day. It's almost as if he only has experience on a reality show where he fires somebody once a week.